Please be seated. You can see from the bulletin that the announced that the uh, excuse me the title of this morning's message is the true fountain of life. The true fountain of life. Now, as I said, we were in this text a, a few weeks ago. Then we had Resurrection Sunday last Sunday. The concept of the fountain of youth. Have you ever heard that expression? The fountain of youth, or the fountain of life, by the way, both re actually referring to the same thing, has for centuries, for centuries, been involved in legends and stories. There's been legends and stories about the concept of the fountain of life or the fountain of youth, either in searching for or even in discovering this so-called fountain of youth or fountain of life. What is that concept, the fountain of youth or the fountain of life? It is that which makes the old, and I'll let you put your own category for the old, the old young. Or it is that which provides eternal life, a life that never ends. It's a fountain that would provide for that life that would either, if you're older, make you younger or provide for you to live forever. Or that which restores life to the dead. And as you look at these legends, as you look at these stories in relationship to the concept, and I remember hearing it when I was a boy, the concept of the fountain of youth or the fountain of life, all of the stories surround those concepts, either bringing back to life or giving eternal life, are especially making the old young again. For examples, just so you don't think it's just hearsay that I'm mentioning this, I'll give you two of the stories that I read just this week in my research and so forth going back, and it, there are many of them. But uh, certainly the first one I think you'll probably be familiar with. There is the story of a spring that was being searched out by the Spanish explorer Ponce de Leon. And he went looking for it, guess where? In Florida. And uh, supposedly, as the story goes, he went looking for the Fountain of Youth in Florida in 1513. And uh, by the way, the desire was that he felt that if he found this fountain and had a drink from it, he would be brought back to youth again, and that this fountain existed in Florida. Now, whether that's a true thing about his searching that or not, that's the legend that goes behind it. And I will assure you that you don't have to move to Florida. It's not there, okay, first of all. Although some of us would like to move there when you see the weather around here sometimes. And by the way, you've got it good. Did you see in Colorado Friday night? 32 inches of snow. Good for them. Okay, back to the message this morning here, okay? And there's another, another one that just to share with you, one of the legends that I came across was a Persian, excuse me, a Persian uh, tradition and uh, I hope I don't pronounce this name wrong, but I probably will. And this Persian tradition had to do with the Indians. And I'm not talking about the Indians and cowboys. I'm talking from India and so forth. And it surrounds uh, Kawajawi Kayadar. I don't know if I pronounced that right. I tried my best with it. But if you look at that legend, and there's lengthy stuff on the internet on this, and it had to do with this fountain of youth again, but it surrounds the story of a salted fish. And the picture is him standing on this salted fish. 
who had fallen into water, and then it came back to life because this supposedly fountain of youth, a fountain of life, brought this fish back to life. And so there are many legends and many stories in relationship to, and there's a fascination among mankind even to this day with the concept, listen to me, the concept of making the old young again. And if you don't think that that's important, we are saturated that, with that in our society today. You say, what do you mean? The concept of the physical exercise that people do because they feel it's going to make them young or bring them back to, and they wouldn't say that, but that's the idea. And there are people that have 65 face operations so they don't show their wrinkles and so forth and pull back their skin. Why? Because they want to be young again. And all kinds of surgery. This is serious stuff, and there's a lot of money in our society today that's, that's spent on that. Or even diets that will keep them young and looking. Listen, accept who you are. If you're 70, you're 70. Don't be ashamed to say you're 70. I realized my grandchildren 20 years ago, well, no, they weren't around then, 10 years ago thought I was old then. You know what? I've got more wrinkles now, and I know it. And you know what? That's sad. Because even among Christians, we do not want to accept our age or the way we look or anything else. That's foolishness, folks. And it all goes back to this concept of the fountain of life or the fountain of youth. And we're not, unable to accept the way God has us and so forth. Now, that may even stir up some people here. Well, so be it, because that's reality. I want you to know, you realize, and it's going to be related to this concept of the fountain here and the, the, the river of waters here. Do you realize, maybe some of you don't, maybe some to you it's a surprise, that the scriptures do speak of the true fountain of life? They do. The fountain of life and the fountain of youth, that concept is found in the scripture. And when we find it, guess what we find out the true fountain of life is? Let me give you a summation of it, and I'm going to just have you look at a couple of verses. The fountain of life rests with God. The fountain of life, according to the scripture, is the fear of God. The fountain of life comes from God. The fountain of life, you ready for this, is God. He is the one, according to the scriptures, that is the one that provides life. He is the one that restores the dead to the living. He and he alone is the one who can give us life that is a life of youth, if you will, and a new birth, and a new beginning. It's all found there. Let me just highlight a couple of the verses so you don't think I'm off in left field. Go with me to Psalm 36, just a couple of things because it's going to relate to John chapter 4. Psalm 36. I'm just going to quickly bounce over them so you see it with your own eyes. Psalm 36, verse 9. Watch. For with thee, that is the one true God, is the fountain of life. See that? With thee and thy light we see light. Go with me to Proverbs chapter 14. I just want you to see them. Proverbs 14. This is not all the verses, by the way. Just a sampling. Proverbs 14, verse 27. 
Look, the fear of the Lord is the fountain of life. You see? It's not only with him. The fear of the Lord is the fountain of life. Or reverence from the Lord. That's where life is found. Go with me to Jeremiah chapter 2. The book of Jeremiah. Big prophet in the Old Testament. One of the major prophets. Jeremiah chapter 2. Look at verse 13. Jeremiah 2.13. Just a couple more verses. In 2.13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me. Who are you? The fountain of living waters. Or it could be translated. The fountain of life. My people have forsaken me. I'm the fountain of life. Jeremiah chapter 17. Verse 13. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake thee will be put to shame. Those who turn away on earth will be written down. Why? I want you to catch this right at the beginning of the message. Because they have forsaken the fountain of living water. What is that? Even the Lord. He's talking to his nation of Israel. But that is also true today. God is the fountain of life. Whether you know it or not this morning, all life comes from him. He is the one who can have you be born again. He is the one who can give you life. He is the one who can refresh you. He is the one who can bring eternal life into your life. He's the only one. And men search for streams of water. Men search and follow legends with fish and so forth, thinking and hoping. People today spend thousands of dollars trying to make themselves look young. You are going to get old, and the scriptures are very clear. As you get old, your body will break down. Inescapable. But the real you inside, God desires to minister to that and to provide, and he is the fountain of life. One more verse, Revelation 21. In case you think it's all the Old Testament, by the way. In Revelation chapter 21, as you end up closing your Bible, so to speak, as we wind it down to the second last chapter, you come to Revelation 21, watch this, verse 6. Again, appropriate to the text that we're dealing with, listen. And he said to me, Revelation 21, 6, it is done. That sound familiar? I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. I am the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring, what? Of the water of life without cost. God gives it. If you want to find true living water, it all comes from God. It is found in Christ. And we find as he closes out the Bible, he basically says it's all done as he's closing the book. In a sense, he's got one more chapter to go. And he says that I will give you thirsting for something beyond that which satisfies the flesh. Only I can provide it. And I will do it free of cost to you. It was a tremendous cost to God. And so as we come to chapter 4, where we're reading of this familiar story to us of this woman at the well and so forth, and we're going to get into this discussion, you need to understand what's going on. 
she already knows some of the Old Testament that it is God that's able to provide life, true living life, that which truly is the fountain of life, the fountain of youth. And I challenge you right at the beginning of the message here today, again in this auditorium, if you're looking for that which will help restore you and renew your spirit, there is only one true place to look, and that's to God himself, who's able to provide true living water and true life. In our context, we learn that no H2O of this life, no water in this world, no drinking in it, no bathing in it, can ever bring life. Now listen, I had the privilege and honor to be down at the Dead Sea. And I didn't swim in it because you can't. I floated in it, okay? And there are people that come from all over the world for medical treatments there. It's true. And they have found that even in there, just because of the minerals and so forth, it is rich and so forth, and it can help heal certain diseases. But I can tell you this, it didn't make me any younger. And it didn't make any of them any younger. And so there is no water on the face of the earth, even the one that's the richest with minerals that can bring eternal life or that can restore a body to youth. Talk to anyone else here that's been in it, and they'll tell you the truth. But it is God who can give life. It is God who is the true living water. It is God that's the fountain of life, and it is God that can bring eternal life. Two weeks ago, we saw, now back to our text in John chapter 4, we saw in the first two verses as we covered them, that Jesus was in Jerusalem for the Passover. And then what he had done is he had a conversation with Nicodemus, and now he's leaving that area. And as he leaves that area, he, we are told that there was baptisms going on, but he wasn't really involved in that. I'm not going to get into that detail again. I've already explained that. And on his journey, he has this conversation with this woman regarding living water and what I've entitled this, this morning's message, although I could have used the same title that I used two weeks ago, that he comes across the situation with her and talks about the true fountain of life. So we pick up the journey in his setting in verses 3 through 6, and that's where we are. John chapter 4, verses 3 through 6. And here we will find both his physical condition and really reflect on man's spiritual condition, and that is weariness as we look at it beginning in verse 3. We pick it up there and we find the journey. In verse 3 it says, He left Judea and departed into Galilee. He leaves the Judea area. Now Judea is the southern part in the southern part of Israel. You have maps in your Bible. I'm not going to take the time to turn there this morning. But if any of you have in your mind's eye a little bit of Jerusalem and, and Israel and the concept, this was near the Dead Sea, okay? So the southern part where Jerusalem would be and so forth. And what do you find in Galilee? Galilee was up in the northern part of Israel, still is today. And that is near the Sea of Galilee. So you get down here, is where he was, near the Dead Sea area. Allow me some mileage there. And up north is where he's going to be traveling to, toward the Sea of Galilee or Mount Hermon. Today you think of Lebanon, or, you know, for example, where Camille came from, up in that area, or the Golan Heights, up in that area. That's the northern section. That's where he wants to travel to. In verse 4 we find, and it says, and he had to pass through Samaria. A couple of just brief notes on this. This was the shortest distance. We know that from math class. Shortest distance between two points, what? Is a straight line. 
So if he wants to go from down in Judea up to Galilee, the shortest way to go would be in a straight line right through Samaria. However, it was not the only way. In fact, one of the ways that was commonly traveled was to go by the Jordan River and to go around Samaria that way. There was another way, and people don't commonly know it, but there was a way to go by the Mediterranean Sea, and technically you'd have to go through a little part of Samaria at that time, but the Mediterranean Road, as it was called back in that time, they could travel that way so they could go around Samaria. But most of the Jews, while they would do that and go other ways, it says that Jesus must, or he had to pass through. Why? I believe that he's dealing with divine appointments. He had a woman to meet there, and he had a woman to talk to. And as the word must is used, or had, as it's used in our English here, usually refers to the fact that he was under compulsion to go that way. Not only was it a straight line, but he had something in God's purpose, divine purpose, and it was to meet this woman at the well and to talk with her. And so when he must needs goes through Samaria, I think that's the part of the passage there that he's dealing with. And so in verse 5, what happens? He has a stop. In verse 5, we find, and he came to the city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now, Samaria, that idea is the modern day, just again to get it in your mind's eye, what we refer to in the news as the West Bank. That's what, he's, that's what we're dealing with. He was in that, in that area. And Sychar was at a northern point, a little bit, I don't have to say all the way north, but it was a northern point uh, of that, from the best that we can tell. And so that's where he travels to. And what was his condition? He was weary, verse 6. So he comes to this area where Jacob's well was, and Jesus, therefore, was being wearied. A couple of comments just to pass on that before we get into the conversation with the woman and so forth. That shows us that he was tired. That shows us that Jesus Christ was fully human. Did he feel the way we felt? We feel yes. He was thirsty. He was weary. He was tired. Let's just compare to the book of Hebrews for just a moment. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 4. I want you to see this. Have you ever, as a Christian, sometimes thought back and said, well, you know, I'm going through this trial, I'm going through this difficulty, but I know Jesus, but he was God, and he didn't feel the way we felt. Yeah, he got tired. He got weary. He was hungry. Remember that? The wilderness? But Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, just briefly. Since then, we have a great high priest. Fellow believer, we've got a great high priest. Notice what it says. He's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Hold on to your faith. Why? For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize. I like that. With our weaknesses. But one who has been tempted in all things as we yet without sin. You see? He can sympathize with us. Why? He came and became a man fully. He knows what it's like to be tired. He knows what it's like to be weary. He knows what it's like to be thirsty. He knows what it's like to be tempted to sin, yet he didn't sin. And that ought to encourage us, verse 16. It says, let us therefore draw near with confidence. Why? To find that help in time of need. When you have needs as a believer, be comforted and encouraged by the fact that your Savior isn't just God, very God. He is, but he knows what it's like. He's experienced pain. He's experienced suffering. Chapter 2 of the same book, one more verse. Chapter 2, just verses 10 and 11. One more passage. 
For it was fitting, it says, for him, referring to Jesus Christ, from whom are all things, this is deity, through whom are all things, to bring many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation. That's Christ. How? Through sufferings. Through sufferings. And he's not ashamed to call us brethren. Don't lose sight of that. Jesus Christ was fully man, fully God. He knows what it was like. He was literally weary. And we find that there. And that is the spiritual condition of men. And they don't even know it. We're going to see that that was the condition of this woman. She was spiritually weary. She had no idea that she needed what she needed. And sometimes we run into people like that. And what does the scriptures tell us? It finds if you want to get rest for your souls, not just water, but rest for your souls, folks, the only place you can find it is in Jesus Christ. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For what? Your souls, it says in verse 29. The real thing that people are looking for. You and I run across people all the time that they may be involved with regular water and don't know that they're weary spiritually and need the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the timing is interesting because in verse 6 it says, came, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but he came, uh, she came about the sixth hour. This woman comes about the sixth hour. Well, in Roman time, that was 6 p.m., to make it very simple for you. In Jewish time, it was noontime. And theologians debate which is which. Was she there at noontime? Was she there at 6 p.m.? I'll be frank with you. The text doesn't make it absolutely clear to us, and I'm not going to get involved in fighting on a hill for this one. Okay? Whatever it was, I have a personal opinion, but whatever it was, she comes by herself, which is very unusual. So she was probably an outcast and embarrassed. Usually women went together. And you're going to see when we do more in Chapter 4, because of her lifestyle, she was probably embarrassed and couldn't come with the other ladies. So she comes by herself. Also, they usually went in the morning and the evening, Roman time, because it was cooler. But she was there at a different time by herself. So it could have been that it was the Jewish calendar and, and at noontime. But it, regardless of that, she comes, and he's there at the well, and now notice what happens. God's solution for this woman and for us in the concept of living water, not drinking water, comes up beginning in verse 7. Here's the initial conversation. I told you we'd also learn some things about witnessing. Watch carefully. Verse 7. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. So he comes to Jacob's well. He's wearied. It's about the sixth hour, whether that's noon or six o'clock, whatever you so choose. We're not sure. But then, then comes this Samaritan woman, and you know it's what Jesus says to her. Watch carefully. Now listen, seriously. Jesus says to her, are you saved? Do you want to go to heaven? We laugh at that. We think that's the way. Do you know sometimes Christians turn people off? Because that's their approach. First time they see them. Are you born again? Let me take the Bible and stuff it down your throat. Then you wonder why they don't want to come back. This is the God of the universe. This is the Savior. His outreach and evangelistic campaign is so foreign to what we're doing today. He doesn't turn around to this person and say, would you pray with me right now? 
You need to be saved. Did he know she needed to be saved? Of course. He starts off with a simple conversation. We in the evangelistic world today have got this so confused. No wonder people think they need to earn salvation. It's for, just read this prayer and say this prayer, and we talk about, I just saved, was involved, we're careful, but I was just involved with 25 professions of faith today. Really? Then Christ, he must have been a failure. He struggled with one woman, with one woman, singular. He doesn't start that way. Listen, we have great news, and the Lord had the greatest news, and he is the news. But he was very careful. He was very tender. And I want you to see something else. He was not the other extreme that we have in Christianity. One extreme is, and I've seen it happen even in this church, we scare people away because the first question we have isn't where you're from, how you're doing, what's going on. It's are you saved? They don't know what you're talking about. Then we have the other side, the silent Christian. Oh, I just want to live my life. I don't, I don't talk to people about salvation. Really? If you're saved, you do. Because it's the evidence that you're saved. He starts it. Don't be afraid. Jesus initiates the conversation. He doesn't ask, have you trusted in me? He doesn't say, do you know who I am? Well, he'll get to that. He doesn't ask those things. He simply says what? He's going to take her from what she does know by the time we're done with chapter 4 to the unknown. But he's got to take her through a process, and he himself is patient. And he starts off with a very simple thing. What is it? Give me a drink. Why? She's at the well. She's coming. He's weary. He's thirsty. He doesn't start bombarding her with that. He's going to get her there. But he starts off, and I think even in our witnessing, it can be a help. You know, it's called friendship evangelism, so to speak. Get to know your neighbors. If you think you're never going to talk with your neighbors or people at work, and the first thing you're going to do is jam the Bible down their throat, you're not going to get anywhere. Even with this woman at the well, he's very careful. And he just says, give me a drink. Why? He's thirsty. He doesn't have a water pot, you'll notice in the context, which is significant. He is weary. This Samaritan woman, here's another part of the thing we can learn for evangelism. She's not the religious leader like Nicodemus was. She's probably an outcast. Do you go to people like that? Most of the time, we'll avoid people. If we don't like the way they look, if we don't like their appearance, if we don't like where they live, we avoid them. I told you, there were other ways to get up to Galilee. And by the way, that is the way that a lot of the Jewish leaders went around Samaria. No, no. I'm going right through. And I'm going to someone who has a need and someone who is by herself that no one else even wants to talk to. But I'll have the courage why he knew he had the right message. Now, he also knew that this was an eternal appointment with her. And you notice in verse, uh, in, in that passage, in verse 9, she recognizes him because when we come down, she knows that he's a Jew. In verse 9, she says, therefore, she said to him, how is it that you being a Jew, how did she know that? Probably because he was dressed the way they were, the Jewish people. And he knew that 
women usually were not talked to by men like this. And so she asked that question, why, you know, I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking drink of me? And I want to give you a little clarification here for a second. What does it mean when it says, for the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans? Whether you realize it or not, part of the response of reading this morning was to help you. And I'm going to give it to you in a nutshell, very quickly. After the monarch of David and Solomon, I mean Saul and then David and then, yeah, Solomon and his son, we know that the Israel was split, right? The kingdom was divided. And what happened was the Syrian captivity was one of the captivities. One of them was under Nebuchadnezzar, but then there was the Syrian captivity. And under that captivity, what happened was that unlike Nebuchadnezzar, what he did was he mixed the people. He kept some of the Jews there, but he mixed in the gods of the world. And he mixed in other people with them. And so the area of Samaria became known as a mixed or a mongrel people. They were not orthodox because of that Assyrian captivity. That's where it goes back to, without getting into all that detail. And what happened was they shunned the Samaritans. Would you look with me in chapter 8 of John for a second? Chapter 8, verse 48. You'll get a picture of it. Because the Jewish leaders treated Christ that way. In verse 48 it says, The Jews answered and said to him, they're talking about Jesus, Do we not say rightly that you are Samaritan? That's very derogatory. See? You are not orthodox. You are that mix that came out of that Assyrian captivity. And you have a demon, they said to him. We'll deal with that in chapter 8. The point I want you to see here is there was this transplanting that went on. And so what happened was they looked at the Samaritans differently. Now, what does it mean that they had no dealings? Does it mean that they didn't do any business with them? Some people think that. I don't think so. Why? Look at verse 8. His disciples had gone away where? Into the city of Samaria. To do what? Buy food. You see? It wasn't. Sometimes we have the picture that they walked around and the Samaritans, they just wouldn't go near them. They wouldn't talk with them. They wouldn't do business with them. That wasn't the case at all. In fact, the disciples of Jesus went there to buy food. So what does he mean when he says that they have no dealings with them? More than likely, it was dealing with the ceremonial type of cleansing. It was dealing with the defilement. Why? He, that is Jesus, had no pot to go into the well. He's speaking to a Samaritan woman, which was unusual. And when he says no dealings with you, it's more likely that he's dealing with that purification. That is what? Sharing that same pot. If she drew water and he shared that with her, in her mind, he would be defiled because of that instrument that he would use. It was like, to try to help you, the concept of when there was a dead body, if the Jew touched it, they were defiled by that. So it wasn't that he basically couldn't do business with her, but if he shared from that same water pot, that's why he said to her, you give me the drink. Now, wait a minute. If I do that and you drink out of my water pot, you'll be defiled. And by the way, that's interesting because we just came out of purification. Did we not? When we dealt with chapter 3, yes. When he dealt with the cleansing in chapter 2, yes. And it's all centered around that. So it was more with the sharing uh, of the cup that uh, he's dealing with here. And I, I do think some of the commentators had it right. It was the concept, one said it was the sharing of the instruments that would defile the Lord Jesus Christ. Not the fact that they didn't do any business or verse 8 would make no sense. But let's move on. 
What you have is he shifts from his need to her need. See that? He gets involved in a casual conversation, doesn't jam anything down her throat, so to speak. He's asking from her to meet his need. And then once she starts talking, Jesus says this in verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew, this goes back to the beginning of the message, folks, the gift of God. And who it is who says to you, give me to drink, you would ask of him that he would give you living water. That he would give you, allow me this, springs of water. Allow me this, the fountain of life. See, he knows that she doesn't know who he is yet. In fact, I'll tell you this, because it's not going to come up in today's message. He's not even going to get her to bow down and ask for Christ to be her savior in this passage. Because he's got to bring her next week to the place where she understands what sin is. When he turns, she turns around to him and says, go get your husband. He doesn't even start with that yet. He's simply trying to take her from what she does know, water, to the fact of who she's got to understand can give true living water. And I'm going to tell you something. Most people that you and I come in contact with have no concept of who God is. All they think of is the God that's in their mind. And even this woman had a total misunderstanding of worship we're going to see in this chapter, a total misunderstanding of who God was, but she's going to be brought eventually to the place to wonder whether or not this is the Christ and even run into the city and say, hey, I found him. But it starts off with just a simple conversation. And I'll tell you this, even in witnessing, when you're witnessing to somebody, that's what you need to do. Move away from what your need is to their need. You've got to be thinking about others. He just casually moved and said, we talk about this water. You're worried about me talking with you. There's a gift that comes from God. And by the way, salvation is a free gift. You're visiting here today. Oh, you haven't come to Christ yet. There could be no clearer. Salvation is the gift of God. You cannot earn it. There is no work on the face of the earth that can bring salvation. No effort from any man or woman could ever bring salvation. God gives it freely. Remember, we looked in the Old Testament, the fountain of life with no cost. Salvation is a free gift that God offers. Her need, she didn't even know about. She was just there to drink water. She had no idea that her soul needed the satisfaction of salvation. And when you and I come in contact with the unsaved, they don't know that. And if you try to talk in terms of biblical knowledge and, and, and use these big terms like redemption and so forth, they have no idea what you're talking about. Just keep it on a low scale because they first of all need to understand who Jesus is. And you'll notice by him saying to that her, if you knew the gift of God, number one, and who it is that you're talking with, now he's got her interest. Why? Look at verses 11 and 12 quickly. He, she said to him, you've nothing to draw with. The well is deep, and by the way, the well they believe is still there today, and the one that they identify, the best reading I could do is still today about 100 feet deep. That's pretty deep. And they feel it was a lot deeper even at this time. She says, how are you going to get this living water? She's thinking in terms of what? This world. Now watch this. You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? She expects him to say no, by the way, the language that's, that's used here. He has no ability as far as she can see. 
but she has no ability to see spiritual things. And she has no idea that not only is he greater, but do you know who she's talking to? The God of Jacob. The God of Jacob. And she's talking with him, and she's, you're not greater than him, are you? And the Lord brings her right back to the simplicity, verse 13, moving ahead. His response isn't, oh, yeah, I'm greater than Jacob. No, wait a minute. He knows she's not there yet. You see, listen, my opinion is between verse 7 and verse 13, by now most Christians have got somebody praying a prayer. That's the truth. Rather than saying, you know what? God's the one that's got to do this work. I've got to just get the word. And he comes right back to that. He says, everyone who drinks of this water, you're going to thirst again, including Jesus. But, verse 14, he deals with the spiritual satisfaction. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. And by the way, I didn't spend the time because time's escaping me, but I'll, let me just say this much. It's interesting when he talks about living waters when you look at that term because it meant a lot to them. Remember, they're in a the desert area, and also there was a difference between stagnant water, which brought death, and flowing water, which brought life. That's how they could tell what they could drink and couldn't drink. And the well, while it was deep, had been spent, it was fed by a spring. And she understood what he was talking about when he said living waters, that which provides life, that which I look for that's just not dead. And that's what he's playing on words, so to speak, here. The one that drinks of this, it's like drinking stagnant water. It's like drinking stuff that is never going to provide eternal life. But what I can give you, notice verse 14, I will give you something that will become a well of water, springing up, interesting term here, it's used elsewhere, springing up what? Into eternal life. That's what God offers. You can search this world to try to be young. You can search this world for the answers for life after death, and you will never find anything but stagnation. The only one that is able to give eternal life, the only one that's able to give you the true, if you will, fountain of life is Jesus Christ. And that's what he was bringing across to this woman. And you notice he's beginning to get her appetite. That's where we're going to end it today. But because in verse 15, she's not there yet. But he's beginning to, allow me to play on words, whet her appetite. Because she says, give it to me. I, need, I want something that's going to last forever. But what does he do? He doesn't rush on it. He just says, I can give it, and it'll become a well to eternal life. Now, it's obvious. I want you to just turn with me to John so that I properly exegete the passage. Go with me to chapter 7 of John for just a moment. She doesn't get this yet, but he's talking about the Holy Spirit here. How do we know that? Well, let's get a little ahead of ourselves. And I do think it's coming from Isaiah 55, if you want to mark it down. But in John chapter 7, verses 37 to 39, now in the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood up crying, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Why? He who believes in me, as the scripture says, 
from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. What is that? Verse 29. But this he spoke, watch, of the Holy Spirit, whom those who believe in him were to receive, for the Spirit is not, was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. It's very clear when he's talking about that. He's talking about eternal life, even back in chapter 4, and the concept of the Holy Spirit, because they need to believe. But don't miss this before we close today. If any man, are you thirsty for eternal things? Thirsting for your soul to be satisfied? To really know that you know God? To really know the, the fact that you'd have eternal life? Look at what Jesus says. He who believes in me. In verse 37 he said, Let him come to me. And what? Drink. It's free. Great cost to God. Cost of our salvation was expensive. Jesus Christ had to leave his glory and experience weariness, thirstiness, dryness, hunger, pain. Why? Because he was coming to take a cup that we just talked about the last week or so. And that he who knew no sin would take the wrath of God for the penalty of sin. And he says, freely I will give to you, but come to me. The only fountain of living waters, the only true, the one and only true fountain of life. And he will give it freely. How does that happen? Faith, verse 38. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being flows rivers of living water. It is Jesus Christ that can satisfy the greatest need of any heart. And if you are here as a believer today, you ought to be rejoicing in that. Why are we looking for other things to satisfy us? I was touched by what Ron brought out this morning. Could you have three children and have two of them die and turn and write a song like that about how you love God? Only God can change a life like that. Only God. Only God. We need to be satisfied with Jesus Christ as believers. Satisfied with what he provides in our life. Absolutely joyous that he's given us the Holy Spirit. And it's his desire to come out and have glorification to his name through the believer. But there's still many who haven't come to Christ. And I'm going to tell you this right now, even through today's message. Through verse 15, he's entered into the conversation. He's talking to her about the true life, the true fountain of life. And she doesn't have it yet. Because of her own confession. In verse 15, when we end today, she says, give it to me. She still hasn't got the concept. And we're going to see next week. It's because he was patient enough not to say, well, just, just bow your head now and, and accept me. She still didn't understand who Jesus Christ was. That's next week. And she doesn't understand sin yet. And he's got to bring her to that place. Then... We get to verse 26. She will begin to see where things are at. She didn't understand. She didn't fully understand who Jesus Christ was or how great he was. Let me close with this. As you and I have an opportunity to witness, witness to people that are part of everyday life, folks, and find out where they're at. God took a woman at a well and he used water. 
He just used the circumstances to have a conversation. He initiated it. He knew what he had to give her, but he also knew she wasn't ready for it, and he didn't try to force it down. Go to the people who are unlikely for people to go to. <clears throat> Put the needs of others before yours. He was thirsty. He was weary. He was tired. But yet he was interested in the soul of that person more than he was in his own tiredness. Have you ever had that situation? I hate to admit it, but it's true. I've had situations where I knew that people had needs and, and so forth and a spiritual need, but because I was either in a run to do something else or thinking about myself, lost an op opportunity. Also, if you learn nothing else about witnessing, if the Lord Jesus Christ could be patient, if the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the one who offers eternal life, if the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the way, truth, and the life, was patient and didn't look for a quick profession of faith, why in the world should we? The world doesn't, God doesn't care about our statistics. What he cares about is really getting, he'd rather have one soul that truly has come to him and understands their lost condition and understands that he is the way, truth, and life than have 500 confessions of faith who have no idea what they've just said because they fall into the category of Matthew who don't know him. When we're witnessing, don't look for a quick profession. Look for God to do the work because only God can do a work in a life. And here Jesus Christ is not a failure because he didn't ask her to accept him right on the spot. He's patient with her because he knows that he's got to take her from that which she does know, which is regular water, to the place of that which is eternal, which is living water. And to get her there, he's very patient in bringing her a step at a time. If you're over here without Christ, he is the one that can satisfy. There is no fountain in Florida. There is no salt-watered fish that has come back to life because it's been in water. The only one that can give true living water is Christ. He says, if you thirst, come to him. He'll satisfy your soul. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we thank you and praise you for this woman. I thank you for her straightforwardness and the Lord Jesus Christ being straightforward with her. Thank you and praise you that he was tender toward her. And yet, Father, still at the same time, leading her a step at a time so that she would come to the place that eventually she will come to realize that this is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I pray, Father, in our own witnessing that we would be patient with people, that, Father, we would initiate conversations, not thinking that I have to have 15 Bible verses, but, Father, just having conversations with people where they are and allow you to lead and guide so in that conversation, we can eventually share spiritual truths with them and let you work. And Father, I know that in a crowd like this, there are people in this audience that are thirsting for eternal life. And the reason is because you've already been working in their hearts. Help them to see that they can come to Jesus Christ. They can come to the true fountain of youth. They can come to the fountain of life. And they, by faith, can believe on him and will be given eternal life. Father, work on their heart right where they are. Help them to see they can do nothing. They can't purchase it. 
They can't earn it. They can only take the free gift which you offer. And might you bring them to that place. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.